From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudolubov. To what extent the legacy of Andrei Sakharov, who was born a century ago, is relevant for today's Russia and the world? A Soviet nuclear physicist and Nobel laureate, Sakharov fought for disarmament, world peace, and human rights. What is the state of those values now at this moment in history? Joining me to discuss this, Cecil Vessier, a professor of Russian and Soviet studies at the University of Rennes II, the author of the book For Your Liberty and Ours, the book about the Soviet dissident movement, and Arkady Ostrovsky, who is Russia and Eastern Europe editor for The Economist magazine. So let's start and go back to Andrei Sakharov's legacy, which is timely for all kinds of reasons. There is 100 years anniversary, but also the times we're going through right now in Russia. So how would you describe, let's start with you, Cecil, his contribution in very general terms, what was new, what was particular about his activity as a dissident, as a person with alternative politics in totalitarian society? What was the most important thing was intellectual freedom. If you remember well, the first text he wrote that became famous in the Soviet Union and in the West in 68 was um, about intellectual freedom. And he was saying that if you want the country, if you want Russia, if you want the Soviet Union to develop, you have to have intellectual freedom. You have to have people who will not be afraid to express themselves, who will not be afraid to think. And he was saying that we should, uh, in the West and in the Soviet Union, at all price, try to uh, not to start a new war, because he understood what it would be. And if he wanted to have good relationships between the Soviet Union and between the West, there had to be freedom in Russia, and you had to be free citizens. And what was also very new in what he was talking about was the fact that he was paying a lot of attention to the Soviet person, to the person, not to the group, not to the people, Narod, uh, in general, but he was saying that each person was extremely important, and that is maybe considered to be some kind of a Western approach to the world, which is not. And he was showing that, no, even for a Russian intelligent, the person itself and the rights of this person were the most important things also to develop the country. So that's the main important thing for me. And he fought for it. Yeah, thank you, Sister Akadi. What do you think? What did uh, Andrei Dmitrievich bring into this whole conversation about Soviet politics and how, let's say, how it changed the uh, national and international conversation? It changed very profoundly because Sakharov, as a both a humanist and as a nuclear scientist who has created the most deadly weapon in the world, the H-bomb, understood and expressed the link which was unarticulated or certainly was not articulated to the same extent as he's done because of the knowledge and the power he had the link between security, international security, nuclear security and peace, and the threat of, therefore, of, of not just war, but elimination of civilization. The link between that 
and human rights and the respect for human rights and intellectual freedom, as Cecile said. And that was actually a completely, as I said, it was a pretty novel idea, which I think explains that there weren't two lives of Andrei Sakharov. There was actually one life of Andrei Sakharov, and I wouldn't even call it a life of a dissident. I think the dissidents kind of took him on and and put him on their sort of banners, or rather he picked up their flag. But, you know, he was much, much broader than any dissident or even domestic Soviet movement. The idea was this, that a country or regime that abuses human rights at home, which forbids and bans intellectual freedom and exchange of information, will always pose a threat to the outside world, will always act with aggression towards outside its own country. And that was a very important message uh, and thought which completely changed the policy of the time, the, the Western policy of realpolitik, or sort of challenged the policy of realpolitik, which separated the abuse of human rights in the Soviet Union from the questions of security, which in the years of Nixon's administration and Kissinger basically argued that we shouldn't take on the issues of, you know, we shouldn't mix up the issues of human rights or anti-Semitism or anything else uh, in the Soviet Union with the issue of nuclear security, that they should be treated as separate things. And when uh, Americans have suggested detente, Sakharov's message was very clear that a detente in itself, without being linked to the issue of human rights, will be actually counterproductive because it will buy the Soviet Union time. It will continue to abuse rights of people at home and therefore it will only become more aggressive later. And obviously what we're seeing today, both in Russia and Belarus, bears this out again and again. The two issues cannot be separated. And the reason I think it was one life is that the idea or sort of justification for his internal sort of justification for the creation of the thermonuclear weapon, the H-bomb, was to prevent, ultimately, prevent the possibility of a of another third, you know, of another war of the kind that Europe saw twice in the 20th century. And the way to do this was to create a weapon that would make the cost so high that it will, the fear of destroying civilization will keep people at bay, will keep the rulers at bay, and they will not venture. To create a parity. To create parity and to create the fear of, the, you know, to make the risk and the, 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 the cost of a war intolerably high. He later understood that fear alone cannot do it. And obviously 1968 was one example of that, the invasion of Soviet troops in uh, Warsaw Pact troops in Czechoslovakia, and then he started battling fear itself. That was one important contribution, which actually won him that idea. It was that idea that won Sakharov the Nobel Peace Prize. There was another sort of flashy, if you like, or, or less striking idea, which today actually, to me, seems just as amazingly important. And that's idea about basing policy, um, any policy, in facts rather than ideology or propaganda. 
in the essay which Cecile has mentioned, the 1968 essay about intellectual freedom, it starts with a very, very interesting preamble before he actually gets to the substance of his argument. He says that his thinking has been formed by intellectually, by milieu of scientific and technical intelligentsia. And he argues that we haven't, we, the Soviet Union, haven't yet reached the point where our policy would be based in fact, in fact, scientific examination of reality. And to me, this is extraordinary, uh, simple, but yet powerful idea. Yeah, yeah, simple and powerful, that's true. I mean, he strikes one as actually this kind of straightforward guy in his uh, stance as a, as a public figure, uh, not a scientist. He's very straightforward. Yes, but basically he was a scientist obsessed with the idea of truth, both scientific and moral or sort of life truth, and was obsessed with the idea of facts and and reality in the same way as you could say you know, Galileo was, or or any great scientist was, but he lived in a society which was entirely built on lies and propaganda. And bringing that truth, or trying to to defend that truth in the country that was built on lies, was absolutely fundamental to what Andrei Sakharov was. This is something interesting. I have not been thinking about it properly, but do you agree or disagree with this one life, two lives argument in in the sense that um, Sakharov's life is more integral, more a whole than the two parts we are sort of normally think about it? No, of course it's one life. It's the life of a person who, of course, was different when he was 30 years old and when he was working on this bomb. I don't think, like Arkady, that he had this uh, full comprehension of what was going on at that time. He was also a product of his time. He was someone who had been brought up in the Soviet Union. He was extremely, he was a genius in physics. And of course, there was this impression, like, if America has the bomb, we have to have the bomb. And it's true that if the Cold War remained a Cold War and didn't get any worse in Europe and, and um, let's say, on the European territory, it was because there was, uh, like, this perception that if America wanted to destroy the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union could destroy America or at least Europe in a second. So I may be wrong, but I don't think that at that time he was thinking too much about, uh, like, the truth, the fact. He was just, like, getting into it. And then he just went on having a perception of what this bomb could create and just being a very honest person, a honest person who could look, like Akadi said, the truth into the eyes and who wanted to assume the responsibilities. There are a lot of people, let's say, in the Soviet Union who do, during Stalin did very dangerous things, but didn't assume the responsibilities. And he assumed the responsibilities, like he had created a weapon that could destroy half Europe. And he would afterwards talk about it. He talked not just like as a dissident, and we could uh, also evoke this his relation to the other dissidents, but he wrote, for example, he explained to Beria, he explained 
to uh, Khrushchev that there shouldn't be any more testing for this bomb. So he was just someone developing, getting older, getting more aware of things, getting more information about the consequences and what was happening in the world. And of course, it's one beautiful life of a very uh, honest person that is taking responsibilities for everything that he's done in his life. Thank you. But can we talk a little bit about how different he was from the dissident movement? They were all different people in this dissident movement. They're all kind of different people who were coming from different places, who had different ideas. And he was just different mm -hmm. the way other people were different. Arkady, you agree with me or? Well, I mean, what made him different, obviously, he was coming from not just within the system. I mean, he was the he was the one, you know, he was the person who armed the country, therefore, you know, considered it as he wrote in his memoirs his own. He possessed real power. He was uh, a Stalin Prize laureate. He could, you know, he could pick up the telephone to any general secretary, you know, from, you know, from Stalin, as a word to Brezhnev or to Gorbachev, and they would listen to him because he had genuine, you know, particularly in the time of the Cold War, you know, he had genuine power on, on his side. So he was coming from very much from within. He did not think that, and I think this is very important, that for him, Russia and the Soviet Union was very much his country, It was, and he was in the mainstream. I actually disagree that he was the product. I mean, it's a very interesting question. I don't think he was really a product of the Soviet uh, Union or sort of Soviet system as we know or sort of what we associate with it. He accepted it, as many Russian intellectuals and intelligentsia people have done. But actually, if one talks about his roots, I think, you know, he was very much the product of that period in Russian life from which he actually begins his uh, this extraordinary text of his memoirs. Uh, you know, he, he is the product of the 1900s in Soviet intellectual life. He traces his own roots back to his grandfather, very interesting, who was a lawyer and who published, edited and published a very important volume that came out in 1900. And the volume was called Against Death Penalty. Sakharov wrongly ascribes, in his memoirs, ascribes Tolstoy's essay from 1908 to that volume. It you know, obviously wasn't published there. But, you know, his roots are very much there in in sort of the conscientious intelligentsia professional class of the 1900s, which Solzhenitsyn has described so eloquently uh, in his essay about Abrazavanshina, um, you know, his essay on Russian educated classes, or which he disparagingly called educatedness. But anyway, he very much was the mainstream in his acceptance of the Bolshevik revolution. He was, in that sense, not dissimilar to, to a lot of Russian intellectuals who saw it as a, as a promise of sort of socialist idea of, uh, you know, greater equality and justice, and, and who sort of carried this through. And I mean, what made him different also from... Um, from dissidents is that he was completely free of any ideological dogmas. You know, to him, 
ideology was so secondary, which is very clear in his essay, again, in 1968, his first public sort of statement, manifesto, if you like, where he talks about socialism as an idea rather than ideology, an idea that is justified, which is productive, and which the Soviet Union has not fully embraced. But that ability in 1960s, at the end of 1960s, and throughout his life to separate the idea of socialism, of justice, from the practice of the Soviet Union was actually quite unique. Oh, thank you, Arkady. Uh, Cecil, do you think that uh, rings the bell? Uh, his ideology, non-ideology, what was Sakharov like as a thinker in terms of, uh, you know, his beliefs? Yes and no, in the sense that it's absolutely true that for him, ideology was not important. If you remember the polemics that he had, for example, with Solzhenitsyn in the 70s, Solzhenitsyn was saying that uh, we have to get rid of this ideology because it's killing us. And Sakhov was saying and writing, the ideology is not very important because already no one believes in it uh, so much in this Marxism-Leninism. It's not so important. So there was this aspect. In a way, a lot of people, I think, see that as a classic discussion between Slavophile and Occidentalist in the sense that Sakhov would be some kind of an Occidentalist who believes not that Russia should be like the West, because Russia is Russia. And when you were saying that he was the product of what existed before the revolution, of course, just as everybody in Russia was the product of what was before the revolution, those people uh, who who were born in the 20s, in the, in the 30s. And he was the product of this society, the Soviet society, the Russian society before that. And uh, when he was saying in 68 that there could be, there should be, some kind of a mixing of good ideas that were in the Soviet Union and good ideas that was in the West. And that was sort of a scandal at that time because people were saying he's so naive, it couldn't be. And at the same time, of course, it's something that has to be taken seriously. But for Sakharov, uh, what was the main important thing? It was always the rights of every human being. And then you can call it like uh, uh, socialism or not socialism, but the rights of every uh, human being are more important than big talks uh, and big hopes given in a very far future. It's true. Okay, Arkady, what do you think about the way we're used to think about uh, Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn, you mentioned, as kind of two big uh, ways of uh, two currents, representatives of two currents in uh, Russian independent thinking or Soviet independent thinking uh, that originated the more internationalist, globalist perspective and uh, on Solzhenitsyn's part, more nationalist perspective. What do you think? Yeah, no, that that's certainly true. I don't know how I would characterize uh, Sakharov. I, th- I think you're right. I mean, clearly in Solzhenitsyn's thinking, nationalism, and I don't mean it again badly, was very important. I mean, that was the, the foundation. I mean, it was about the emancipation of, of Russian people, uh, of Russian nation from the uh, Soviet empire. That was the original thought. But, you know, he was, in that sense, very ideological. 
fighting, you know, all his writing was to undermine the uh, Bolshevik, you know, the communist system, which he saw, unlike the people of the late 50s and 60s, he saw as as alien and hostile, unlike uh, a lot of the people in the dissident movement or people who stayed within the system but were critical of it. He didn't harbor any illusions about or hopes of going back to the uh, to the roots of the Bolshevik movement, to Lenin, to, you know, he didn't believe in the idea that it was somehow diverted by Stalin. I mean, he saw, you know, communism as an alien and dangerous and hostile regime, um, an ideology that needed destroying. He was fighting with it. Sakharov, partly because he didn't think about it in those terms, and partly because he considered nationalism just as harmful because, you know, for a scientist, you know, science cannot be nationalist. You know, physics, if you study stars, if you study universe... Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually a good point. I haven't been thinking about it. That's a good point. Yes, he is a scientist. He can't be a nationalist scientist. But, I mean, what's really interesting and struck me in his and sort of you know, to what uh, Cecile was saying, again, if you go back to this fundamental text, his memoir, which is not actually, strictly speaking, a memoir, more of a sort of a reconstruction of his intellectual process, you know, he starts talking about human soul and human spirit straight after he describes the expansion of the universe. At that point, he is dealing with, uh, with stars I'm not a physicist, but I think that, you know, certainly that's how it comes across in, in, in his writing. And then he sort of descends, all, I mean, metaphorically, he sort of descends from the, from the universe to the, to the sort of human spirit and human soul. And he writes that, and he's constantly in this dialogue, clearly, with, with Solzhenitsyn. And there, is, there comes a point where he says, it's actually not going to be some ideology, it's not going to be a Russian nationalist idea, it's not the idea of Russian Northwest as some sort of utopia that, that will save the country. It's just simple things of human compassion, Mm-hmm. And that's very, very striking. As somebody who's dealing with the, you know, black holes and universe and stars, who don't have spirit, who don't feel compassion towards each other as they're expanding or shrinking or whatever it is they're doing. He's, you know, he starts talking about the one body, you know, the human spirit, which deserves compassion. He starts talking about this universal, in that sense, completely universal human things. And I think that's where sort of the lines between him and, and Solzhenitsyn sort of emerge most clearly. Oh, thank you. That's uh, that's a very good point. Uh, so what do you think about this? To what extent this duality is real in the Russian, the, the legacy of Russian public intellectuals, sort of this Sakharov-Solzhenitsyn divide? First of all, I would like to say they respected each other very much. And this is something important that we have to remember. Of course, they were very different and they have different views. And um, of course, what Akadi said about compassion is very true because he he was the incarnation of someone who shows a lot of compassion to people and to the most simple person. And this is, for me, as a foreign person, this is actually the best that there is in, the, for example, the Russian culture of the 19th century. That was something that the Bolsheviks tried to destroy 
because ideas were supposed to be more important and ideology was supposed to be like the highest things. And in that sense, yes, of course, he was a true Russian intellectual in the 19th century sense. And he brought that back without talking about it and without having like big talks. But at the same time, Solzhenitsyn, the problem with Solzhenitsyn for me is the fact that afterwards he got into uh, like some kind of politics and when he was very old and met Putin and started having all this plan to reconstruct, rebuild Russia and everything. So it's something that sort of destroyed a little bit his image in Russia and in the West. But Solzhenitsyn went in the 70s. Of course, he's talking about the Northwest as some kind of a utopia. But he's also saying, for example, that people should, uh, what's it called, repent, that they should repent, that they should limit themselves. And it's also like very interesting thoughts in the sense of the human being. So they're not that different. Of course, they are different, but they are more like uh, complementary in some ways in the 70s. And afterwards, of course, it was different. Okay, thank you, Cecil. Uh, let's just, uh, to round it up, say a few words about how you think Sakharov is relevant today, right now, for today's Russia and uh, today's international conversation between Russia and uh, the West. I think he's absolutely relevant. First of all, everyone in Russia should be proud and happy that someone like this was born in Russia and gave up so much for Russian people and Soviet people and Jewish people to live better. You know, I I do believe that you need to have examples in your life and you have to to show uh, children some kind of an examples. And for me, like Sakhov, it's the kind of person that you can show to children and say, you know, like this person, he's able to give so much and he's so smart and he's so... That's the first thing. The second thing, I was rereading his main text because of this anniversary is absolutely relevant. You know, he was talking, like Solzhenitsyn was in a different ways, about the problems that exist in the Soviet Union. He was talking about corruption. He was talking about the fact that um, a lot of people live in very bad social condition. Too many people are too poor, especially compared to the West and especially compared to the way they could live if the natural resources of Russia, of the Soviet Union, were used for the people and not for other ideas or other people. So, Everything he wrote is absolutely relevant. The fact that what is lacking in Russia at the moment, what is lacking in Russia at the moment is, first of all, laws. The fact that the law can protect the people, can protect the expression of people. It's also this intellectual freedom. And of course, like we started with it, uh, why are the relations between the West and Russia so bad? Even if the West still doesn't, quite understand, and I'm talking, for example, about Macron, he quite he doesn't quite understand the relation that is between human rights situation in Russia and the security of Europe. And of course, it's connected, the way Sakharov said it. But we see that the relationship are very bad now 
with the West and situation with the human rights and the ability to express oneself in Russia freely without having big risk of, uh, and in Belarus, it's something being uh, sent to jail. The situation on this plan is, is, is extremely high. So I think that, yes, everybody should read Sakhov's text. And everybody should think about it because it is the most relevant things in Russia now. Thank you so much, so, uh, Arkady. Briefly, again, can you you know talk a little bit about Zaharov's relevance for today? I would argue it's greater than it was at the time when he wrote it, and the reason is it, I think it is greater is that we're dealing with leaders and regimes in Russia, in Belarus, North Korea, in China. We know we're dealing with the regimes with leaders who are fast losing the fear of war that was present in, in the previous generation uh, of world leaders, including in the Soviet Union, who went through the war and knew this was not a, some video game. The fear of using the nuclear weapons, the saber-rattling that we hear from Putin and from others, uh, is what makes Sakharov's ideas more relevant than ever, that the importance of battling for human rights and, and against corruption is absolutely central to the idea of peace and security. And because that second element is getting weaker, the fear, the first element, the, you know, the rule of law and, and particularly the um, respect for human rights is, is, uh, is basically uh, the most important element now, it should be the most important element of um, any security policy. Okay, thank you, Arkady. Thank you, Cecil. I think that was a fascinating, short but fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Canon Institute, on Facebook at canon.institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash canon.